Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations with the intention of demystifying, destigmatizing, and desensitizing what really gets talked about behind the closed doors of the therapy room. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Selkin. And we're seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. So join us as we dive into the ways that therapy can be connecting not only to yourself, but also to those around you. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Danae and I are super excited to talk about the fact that we have our first in-person retreat coming up this January, uh, the first week actually, January 2nd through 7th in Carefree, Arizona. It's going to be a stunner. This retreat is happening at Savannah Retreat, which is like, I could not be more excited for this. I know. It's so beautiful, so luxurious, and you know, I feel like we have been so hungry to come together in community for certainly over a year now. And, you know, we were really committed to like, we want to do this in a way that feels safe for everyone and in a way that we can really hold some therapeutic containing work, um, but also really create community in a way that all of us have been so hungry to feel it for so long now. Yeah. And if you guys are listening to the podcast, then you know what Danae and I are about, right? You know that we are all about getting in there, deep diving, getting beneath the surface. And so we're going to bring together, it's basically going to be a week of us bringing together all of the deepest, most integrative work that her and I do on a day-to-day basis, right? Mm. So we're going to be doing shadow work. We're going to be doing inner child work. We're going to be talking about the mother wound. We're going to be, you know, getting in and digging out old codependent relationship behaviors and patterns. I mean, there is so much that we are packing into this week. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that thematic just, healing work. Ooh. And, you know, we're going to dive into masculine and feminine dynamics, which we're obsessed with. But, you know, to me, this is really going to be like us supporting you in leveling up, you know, not only your spiritual tools and your toolkit in general, but, you know, how you want to enter 2022, right? Yeah. How can you learn to live from the most authentic place or the mm-hmm. most authentic space that you possibly can? That is really our hope to be able to give you the tools to do that in the best way that you can. Love it. This is from self-abandonment to inner belonging, the intensive, like you said, V, January 2nd through 7th in Carefree, Arizona. Join us. Yeah. It's on uh, my website, vanessabennett.com backslash retreats. I'm so excited for today's guest. Um, This is one of those, you know, I feel like you have people that you meet along your journey who just really, you feel impacted by the people that they are, the way that they see the world. And um, our guest today, Jesse, is someone that I met, you know, as a young pup, my early days in LA. And, and I was so impacted by the person that he is. He just has the most beautiful, open, compassionate heart. And it is so clear in the work that he does and the way that he shows up that, that that's who he is. Yeah, he definitely has one of those old soul mm. kind of vibes. Like, I feel like I want to sit around a fire with him <laughs> with a whiskey and just like pontificate and talk for hours, you know. And the reason why I feel that way too is because he's got this ability to feel very like open and non judgmental and curious. And I mean, I got that even from just the one hour that, you know, we spoke. So, I think that if anything, when I, when I think back on, on what this conversation was, there were so many different directions that we could have gone in that we did go in and it all got my wheels turning, you know, Mm -hmm. like I walked away from our conversation yesterday and I think I just kept thinking about it and kept thinking about it and it really stayed with me. And so I feel like if that was the case for me, it'll be the case for you all listening. Like it, it just, it stirred something in me and kind of, 
um, I don't know. It just, yeah, it stirred something in me. Yeah. I mean, and he comes from such a depth background as we do that I feel like he's someone we may twist his arm to come back, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just explore other topics. Cause I really like, as you were saying, the way that he sort of explores and brings curiosity to whatever the topic is that we're talking about. Yeah. And he's got the chops, you know, like he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's done the work himself. He's done the work. Like he's, he's working with, you know, pretty tough populations and he's, mm-hmm. he's not just sitting back thinking, right. Mm-hmm. Like he's also in it too. And I, have a deep appreciation for people who do both the pull back and think and also roll their sleeves up and get in and, and actually help, you know? So I appreciate that about him. And I think you all will too. Yeah. Love that. Enjoy guys. So today we actually have an old friend of Danae's. So Jesse Estrin is a marriage and family therapist who does the majority of his work within California's prison system facilitating mindfulness-based emotional intelligence programs. He's passionate about advocating for criminal justice policy reform in California and across the US and exploring the intersections of religion, spirituality, and depth psychology, which you all know we love digging into. So Jesse, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us. And I'm very excited about this conversation because I feel like there's going to be a lot to nerd out on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I feel like, um, you know, we were just saying right before we got on, it's been over 10 years since I've seen Jesse. We used to work at a yoga studio together in Venice Beach when we were just little babies. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I've sort of been following your work and following your journey. You're such an incredible writer. And I'm so often really moved by things you write about the work that you do. So I was excited to pick your brain a little bit about where your journey has taken you since I've last seen you. And um, I know that you went to Pacifica where Vanessa and I both went to school for grad school. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, just if you could give us the trajectory of like post exhale yoga studio to like how you got to do what you're doing now. Sure. Well, thank you both so much for having me on. Um, and I didn't realize you also went to Pacifica as well, Vanessa. I huh? did. The crew. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess how to condense it. Um, I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco to a, to do master's program at a school called California Institute of Integral Studies, which mm-hmm. kind of a sister school to Pacifica. Yep. And I did a very interesting um, master's program. It felt a little bit like Hogwarts. Uh, the, the <laughs> department I was in was philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there was a whole mishmash of depth psychology, comparative religion, philosophy, archetypal astrology, cosmology, you name, you know, all these kind of disciplines inter, interweaving. So I did a master's there. I actually turned around and did my second master's at Pacifica because I realized I needed to do something practical with a lot of that. And there was this kind of a seamless connection with forms of depth psychology and therapy as well. So then I started seeing um, clients and doing my internship in San Francisco. And right around that time, I was invited into San Quentin State Prison mm-hmm by a teacher of mine who became a mentor and his name is Jacques Verdun. And he founded a program called GRIP, which stands for Guiding Rage into Power. And mm-hmm. so that's been about eight, almost nine years that I've been, I started as an intern and then I started um, facilitating my own classes and then becoming a trainer of other mm-hmm. facilitators and working in some other capacities within the organization. Um, and GRIP is a year long intensive program um, working with incarcerated folks around violence prevention, but the, but the foundation is emotional intelligence and sure. mindfulness. 
So we do a lot around mindfulness, emotional intelligence, as well as victim impact. And it's basically an opportunity for a lot of folks. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the guys have been sentenced to life and had violent crime. And Jacques, when he created the program, felt like there were actually a lot of programs and also just a collective sense of empathy for nonviolent drug offenders or for juveniles. Mm -hmm. And there have been also in the criminal justice reform space, there's been focus on different demographics. Mm -hmm. the, the population he felt, which had the, the fewest resources and almost the, the smallest amount of empathy and compassion were violent offenders, sure. mm -hmm. folks who have done serious harm. Um, so our program really catered to that population. And it was helping folks uncover and understand their rage, their anger, and their violence. And so that, of course, as both of you know, is really connected to um, opening up to the deeper layers, and especially for men, but not only for men, it's mm -hmm. accessing the realms of shame, mm -hmm. hurt, pain, loss, grief. So a lot of um, a lot of grief work, a lot of work around shame. And of course, it doesn't take long till you uncover really deep layers of trauma in childhood and broken homes. And um, that motto of hurt people, hurt people and healed mm -hmm. heal people is most certainly true. So I got pretty involved in that work for a long time and I've been peripherally involved with criminal justice reform, both on a state level and a national level as well. And yeah, I've done some writing projects and some other things here and there, but that's um, kind of the brief overview of some of the work I've been most involved with the last Did decade. you know that that was like a population that you were drawn to, or this was something you were interested in before you started working with GRIP? Or was it that that kind of opened you up to that? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. I, I had done a, a class in undergrad uh, in college, and we went into a, the maximum security prison in New York called Greenhaven. So I did a semester there and that was really powerful. Mm. Um, I was joking with a friend actually recently who also did that program was we were brought in as college students to like help these inmates be prepared to get released. And of mm. course, we're in our 20s and incredibly privileged and naive. And here were these, we're sitting in the circle with these men who were profoundly awake, I would mm. say, clear eyes, open hearts, very spiritually oriented. And it was just, I mean, it was very clear they were helping us. They were teaching you, yeah. yeah. So that was amazing. But I did, I, Jacques introduced me to St. Quentin, the circles there, and I had been doing a lot of men's work. So I'd been interested in men's work personally. Right. And then once I stepped into St. Quentin, it was, it was a powerful moment and I was really privileged and honored to be invited in, mm -hmm. but it, I hadn't really been seeking it out, honestly. Um, and it was, what was powerful about it was, it was just when I came in and these are large circles, 30, 35, mostly men, there are transgendered folks, but we haven't yet gotten into women's prisons. So, um, it was a lot of men in this case who were doing some deep work around masculinity and what it means to be vulnerable and authentic. And it really blew my socks off, so to speak. And um, mm -hmm. but like, they were really models of, of work that often isn't done on the outside. Sadly, a lot of people are just cruising and living life. And so sometimes it requires pressure mm -hmm. and fire and struggle for us to confront deeper layers and do some of that transformative inner work. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many directions. I, I feel know, like we could go with you. There's <laughs> 20 questions in my head I want to ask you. Um, but we'll start with a little bit of what we touched on 
yesterday. And, you know, a big part of why I was curious to pick your brain is some of our listeners know I've become a little bit obsessed with, um, you know, what started as Carl Jung's work around masculine and feminine energetics and how all of us have these energies within us. And I do a lot of work with couples and I've found it really helpful to me to really dig into these energetics and start to understand a little bit of what I can now see is what is making it really hard for people to have sustainable connection and love. Um, a lot of the ways that we are just really operating, I believe, in a society as a society from some really wounded masculine and feminine spaces. And you were actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you were the first person to introduce me to David Dita's work when mm. we um, we're working together at Exhale. And, you know, I've sort of circled back so many years later and really have um, done a deep dive into his work and John Wineland's work and some other people who are talking about, you know, just the integrated, healthy, masculine energy. And, you know, I'm curious because as I've been really digging into um, how to reclaim divine feminine energy, um, what I'm realizing about that for myself as a black woman is that so much of what I have been conditioned to be as a woman, which is like really pretty wounded masculine energy in a lot yeah. of ways has to do with um, so much of what black women in our culture are conditioned to be. So much of that I think is because we are um, just like a whole culture of women who, you know, especially people of color, a lot of our men are incarcerated men, right? Yeah. A lot of them are um, not in their families with their families. And so I've sort of been looking at this from the perspective of like, what is this doing to our women? But I'm really curious to hear a little bit about your perspective um, in terms of like these energetics and what it's doing to these men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so great. I, I... David Data, yeah, I haven't read him in a minute. But <laughs> I shared with you back in the day. Um, I think it's what just seems important to me is, and I, I love how Jung wrote about this, is mm. just to remember there are these polarities and there's this constant dynamic and flow between these different poles within our psyche. I, I love you both know um, James Hillman from Pacifica. I loved his concept of how the psyche is polycentric, that he brought mm. a polytheistic Jung had that a bit of a binary polarities which I think yeah. the universe does work in polarities but there's also multipolar dynamics within the psyche I believe so um, I mean there's a lot of threads there in your question Danae so <laughs> I try to think about which way to respond but I guess I'll just first say that you know, this idea, you know, and I saw you post the other day about toxic masculinity, and obviously that's a big phrase, and it can just be challenging to remember, like, what what is the divine and sacred healthy form of femininity or of masculinity, and what are the toxic, more difficult sides, and they can both coexist, and there's collective levels, there's personal levels. So I'll just say that working, doing the GRIP program in some of these institutions, has been really incredible because a lot of these men, they're not, they don't all identify as men, but the vast majority do, um, have really struggled with the shadow side of what it's supposed to be to be men, you know, mm. never expressing vulnerability, crying, tears, emotion, hurt, pain. It's just been, it's so clear that there's such a wounding. And I do think that that feeds right into the way women have 
been treated and modeled. And I think everyone is, there's so much trauma in the field. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of like, before we hurl accusations and blame and judge, like that's going to be very natural when there's hurt and trauma. Mm -hmm. It's also like, how do we slow down and realize that in many ways, everyone is hurt and wounded. And we're all trying to find the healthy forms of gender dynamics, of race, ethnicity, of just religious background, all our legacies, we're all kind of, we're all in this weird liminal state, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think compassion and understanding is really important before we kind of get hijacked by some of our rage and anger, which again is very understandable. There's been tremendous trauma inflicted on women, on folks of color. I mean, that is very real. so I think I'm just going to pause there. I've kind of yeah, lost that a lot there in what you're asking. Well, let me I build off that. of that and ask, cause I, and I, I don't, this isn't like an answer. I think that any of us necessarily have like clear mm-hmm. as day, but you know, this reminds me, I was just having, I mean, kind of an argument with my partner the other day where, um, it's like holding the tension of what you were saying, which is like, can we find a space of compassion? Can we look at the actual place of hurt that a lot of these wounded energetics actually come from, right? Whether we're talking masculine or feminine and also at the same time, hold space for the very natural, like you said, anger and rage that comes from the hurt of being on the receiving end of the wounded, either masculine or feminine, right? And so it kind of came out in an argument with him and I, because I can tend to go to that place of anger very quickly. You know, I'm not a woman of color, but as being a woman, I I worked in advertising for many years, which is a a very, very, I mean, a lot of toxic masculinity, actually, it's a very patriarchal system and structure. And I've struggled a lot with, you know, sexual harassment and all kinds of things. And so I can go very quickly to my anger, even being a therapist and even being able to tap into empathy and compassion. And in a lot of ways that was very triggering for him because then he feels like he needs to be on the defense of let's say the masculine right and then him being in a place of defense then triggers me to say well now you're not allowing space for my anger and the reason why I bring up this personal example is because I think this is actually what's happening at a collective level too right we're not nobody I don't think on either side of that argument is actually saying they're both true yes and let's hold space for both right you being angry doesn't mean that I'm wrong maybe you know and so again, this isn't necessarily something I think we have the answer for, but I guess with the work that you do, I mean, do you see, or do you hope for like a way out of that where we can hold both? I mean, yeah, sure. Definitely. That's the hope. The ideal, right? (laughs) It's what we have to do, right? We will hold both and, and, and be able to integrate and synthesize both if we want to, you know, survive with any sense of harmony, I mean, I think that's a great point because, you know, it's something that's been interesting to me working in the prisons and I, I am very aware of my positionality as a white straight man, especially going into these institutions, which have a lot of folks of color, it's complex and I hold it and navigate that challenge and complexity every time. Mm -hmm. But something that is interesting when I talk about the work or maybe write about it, what I noticed collectively from all my friends and extended communities, people have such compassion, like, oh my gosh, all these people locked up in prison, they're not monsters. Sure, they might've harmed people and made mistakes, but everyone deserves a second chance and they shouldn't be locked up for 30 years. And this is a crime against humanity. And there's just a, there's often such an empathy for a lot of the folks, even if they've committed great harm. And what's interesting is a lot of the victims or survivors of these particular men, 
a lot of them are not in a place of forgiveness. I hear mm-hmm. all the time. I work with men and they're facilitators. They have changed and transformed from the root up like completely different human beings. They might've been in, in their teenage years or twenties when they committed their crime and they're in their forties and they're just yeah. completely different. And they'll go to their board hearing and they're the whole family of their victim and their survivors will come with signs and they'll be like, keep him locked up. Don't you dare, you know, they'll be sobbing. Like how don't you dare think about releasing this monster back into the world. And they mm-hmm. just clearly, sadly, there's a huge failure of helping survivors and victims do emotional processing. They're just left in the system too, just floating right. and they get stuck in resentment and anger. Really good point. What's interesting is that I and other folks can have really open empathy for these, these men and women because they didn't harm us. They didn't harm right. me. So I can come in, I'm like, oh, wow, tell me about that murder or that rape. And we process it and I hold them as they cry and we like emotionally support them. And there's a lot of unconditional love. But the survivors and victims can easily be just stuck. And therefore, it's not their work. They shouldn't be interfacing necessarily. I mean, there can be profound restorative justice practices, dialogues between the survivors and and violent offenders. But I just sometimes when I hear and witness this cultural dialogue between men and women, between white people and black people or people of color, it's so understandable that mm-hmm. people have been traumatized. It's, it's, there's just a lot of rage or anger or hurt or, and it can be hard to access the compassion or the empathy. And I just, I don't know what to do with that, but I think about it because mm-hmm. I, in the, in the prison worker, you, in therapy, it's like, someone who's kind of neutral can work with the offender. And so white people or men, the offenders, people who have committed tremendous harm, how do we work with them, people like myself, to help unpack and do healing work so that they stop committing harm? Like, first of all, stop harm, and then try to understand where that's coming from, do deeper layers of healing work, probably connected to grief, shame, trauma. Um, But it's like the... I don't know how it works now on a collective level when those who have been harmed are like in the face of the person trying to do that healing. Like, let me tell you how to do this healing work and right. you're not doing it right. Or in your, the process of your healing work, what you just said triggered me. It's just complicated. I don't know how that works because therapy and in the and grip, it's like, we're just, there's a safe space created so that the offenders can do deeper layers of work, which is vulnerable. Yeah. I love what you just said so much, Jesse. I've never heard someone speak to the fact that victims are just as much a part of the system and that there isn't any sort of emotional support or um, how you're processing what has happened to you after the fact. And as you're speaking, I'm so struck by how much they are stuck in this moment of pain, maybe for the rest of their lives a lot of times, right? Um, And how how awful, you know? and I think with with what you were saying about how we start to come from a place of compassion, you know, in 2020, when everything was like really at a uh, uh, breaking point, point yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the, the word I couldn't find, um, <laughs> with racial injustice. And, you know, I feel like there was just like so many like heated social media comments where people were like, white people sit down, don't say anything, just listen, get a book, la la la. And I was like, yeah, 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 everybody, here's the thing that actually doesn't do anything in terms of 
you know, like people will be interested in listening for five minutes if that's sort of the, you know, like the shaming stance that we take around like where things have been for 500 years. But if we really want to do anything substantial here, I think we sort of have to do some shadow work around this. And this is like, you know, I, I could sort of say that as a woman of color, I have been a victim of racism and experienced a lot of what people are talking about. And I think what is more productive to me is to sort of get curious around the fact of like, where is there racism in me? Where is there privilege in me? Where do I have blind spots um, around where I have been a part of the system, um, you know, complacent, complicit. <laughs> the words are just not coming. Mm -hmm. um, complicit in all of this in ways that maybe I have blind spots too. And I found that when I was facilitating groups, that was actually a much more productive conversation because if we sort of can come into the space of like, where have all of us been a part of this? Where have all of us been, um, actually all of us victims of this, right? Like then it becomes a very different conversation because I think that there is just as much, um, pain in whoever is the oppressor, whatever the situation is, right? As you're speaking. And about. the thing is too, is it's like, that's such a profound yes. And I know we've all experienced the like intense defensiveness and triggering that comes up the, you know, you're victim blaming, you're this, you know, you know, when we say to a quote unquote victim, regardless of what they're a victim of, we need to look inward, right? Mm -hmm. And see where, I mean, look on a smaller level, not to minimize, but like I do this in couples work when there's infidelity, you know, it's like, I look at the person who's been quote unquote cheated on and I'm like, okay, so what was your part in this, right? And let me tell you, it doesn't usually go well, you know? And I know that, and that's why I do it. But on a larger level, if we're talking about rape or homicide or, you know, these systems of oppression, it's like, it takes a lot of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. for somebody who's been a quote unquote victim to be able to sit in that space and say, let me bring out the shadow. Let me look at the shadow. And, and I do think that maybe that's part of all of the work that the three of us here are doing right in our own little small corners of the world. But the example that I gave, I've done so much of this work and even I am, I get to a place of anger and I'm like, you don't get to say that. Cause now you're telling me, you know, that I'm wrong. I go there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't even know where the question is in this. It's just an interesting conversation. It's like, where do we even begin? You know, I, I was in the conversation just, um, yesterday, I think it was. And there was a group, it was a group Zoom call and um, it was a space for white folks to process white privilege. And um, a woman was speaking and she was, she was talking about, well, I mean, it's, it's so interesting. I, I mean, <laughs> whenever I'm in these spaces, it's like, it, well, the dynamic is there's a group of white folks talking and it's really hard to own the white privilege. And so I noticed the women will often start talking about being a woman. And mm. so it's kind of like, and then if someone's queer or gay, they'll, and so it's, you know, and I'm, I don't really have any, I'm at the top of this pyramid, um, so mm. to speak. So it's always interesting because um, it's, it's hard. Folks will want to identify with the ways that they've been oppressed or victim. And there's an interesting- yeah, in a lot of these spaces, I mean, there's no right or wrong, and I'm. It, it's just interesting that there will be a, a, a revert. I've noticed a reversal of hierarchy. The folks who have been most impacted get their voice heard, and they're the ones speaking. And people who have no mm. are not victims in any really overt, clear way. Mostly, just have to sit and listen. Get it's confusing because I'll be I'll I'll feel like I received the message. Sit back, Jesse, and listen. You're the white male. Like time to listen but then there'll be people who are like why are all the white men so quiet we want to hear mm -hmm. you speak i want to hear something 
And then I'll witness in these spaces where white men will try to lean in and speak and inevitably put their foot in it. Yes. One thing wrong or one thing and it will trigger somebody and suddenly, so it's like I've noticed a lot of white men and myself too. It's like, I don't want to speak because it feels like a landmine. But then mm-hmm. if I'm sitting back, that's my privilege of just disappearing and I, sh- I need to lean. So there's, and that's what happens in the field of trauma, right? It's yeah. like, come in, I want you closer. Wait, no, that doesn't feel good. Step back. And it's like, people don't even know. And we're just in this interesting dance together. And I think if we can all just continue to slow down and feel into the nuance, and I think Mm -hmm. you're both right, that as unpolitically correct as it is, I think everyone needs to turn inwards. And, you know, that's Jung was brilliant at that, like looking into the shadow and it turns out that people who have been tremendously victimized can have huge shadow and they can easily become a quote unquote, like, you know, rigid, aggressive kind of Nazi, like right. The traitor of some violent energy. The victim persecute is real. And we yeah. see well, even young. I mean, shit, I'm, I'm like diving into a podcast right now where they're breaking down the red book in a little bit more of a digestible way. And they're talking about the, the section of the book where he starts to look at and examine his own, um, you know, benefits from the patriarchal system and his own, I mean, his own prejudice against Jews, right. We're talking about the time and the location that, that young was, was alive. Um, and he starts to challenge it within himself. And a lot of people really revered him for that because yes, he was the white man. And yes, he had a lot of privilege financially and all these things, but he actually kind of took it upon himself to be like, whoa, I need to look into this and, and, and really unraveled a lot of it on his own. And so he was able to look inward and be like, okay, I have to own some of this, you know, and, and face it in order to heal it within, and then also start to heal it collectively. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I will just make a plug here. If either of you heard this, there's this amazing woman. I think she's one of the most incredible facilitators. Her name's Diane Hamilton. She's okay. a Zen, Zen Buddhist teacher uh, out of Salt Lake City, I believe. Um, but I did a couple retreats and workshops with her in, around this, race, diversity. And um, it was really intense. But what's cool is she had an, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the integral perspective. Mm-hmm it's complicated and, you know, there's critiques, of course, but what was cool is the frame was there's like these layers that we can identify with. We can identify as, as our body, as our race, gender, ethnicity, you know, and then we can also identify as human Mm -hmm. and that we're all humans on this earth. And there's like layers, you know, whether it's causal, subtle, you know, there's different ways we can identify. So we did all these experiments sitting in circles about ways we're all similar. What's the same between us and then what's different? So it was a constant play between similar, like um, similarity and difference. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was it was just like titrating. So folks of color in this space really wanted to focus on how we're different. The white people in this circle, the, I don't feel safe. And, and so we would go into that and then they would be like, well, let's see, can we step back just for a moment as an experiment? Can you feel into, we're also all human beings in human bodies in the circle, trying to figure this out together. And it was interesting because when somebody couldn't do that, they just couldn't it felt unsafe for them to identify commonality. It just, everything stopped. We could not mm-hmm. move to with like 40 people because some people couldn't make that shift. And it was just an interesting thing around, we're in this collective moment where some people are leaning towards really wanting to highlight the difference because yes, race is real. We're not colorblind and gender is real and patriarchy is real. But when you study like anthropologically, uh, humans, 
there's always a delicate balance like in the tribe whether you're belonging in the tribe or if you're cast out of the tribe and there's too if there's too much difference it polarizes into like wartime primitive if there's too much commonality it's like a merged i'm trying to think in my mind what that leads to too much merged commonality is like obviously not good either it almost feels like complacency like within a society that that leads me to believe there's like too much complacency too much um because the struggle is what uh, pushes us. The struggle right. is what kind of fuels us, right? So if there's too much peace and, and complacency, yeah. that's, yeah. And that brings it back to David Dita, right? In relationship, you need polarity. You need that polarity. Chemistry and passion. If, if it's too much merged, it's it's like stacked. <laughs> so collectively, I, I've always thought about that, of just like, we're in this collective conversation. And you could even see it, like Democrats and liberals are really mm-hmm. wanting to lift up the, all the inequalities and the racism and, and people are kind of not into the USA or American flags. And it, it, there's an energy that's more of like deconstructive. And the Republicans more generally are like America, like freedom, let's feel proud. And there's like, let's be cohesive, but it's just different archetypes, cohesion versus disintegrate or take apart. And I think there's medicine and importance of both. But if we get polarized onto just one side or the other, there starts to be, I don't know, it's, it gets extreme on it's one side. Well, I'm bringing it back to our conversation about energetics. I mean, I was listening to a Jungian podcast the other day that they were talking about how with the, the vast polarity we have found ourselves in, if we're talking politics, how the current GOP has almost become so synonymous with this, like, um, I mean, I guess I would say more of like the, the wounded masculine energy, whereas like the, the democratic side has almost become so attached to, or, or described by this wounded feminine energy because it's all about like you know wanting to nurture but it's like to the extreme and the other side is also to the extreme and so now we've again talking about masculine and feminine now we've got these very you know two polar there's too much polarity um because both have gone into the place of the, the toxicity of it um right because i'm all masculine i'm all feminine versus actually coming together and saying i'm a little bit of both mm-hmm. right yeah yeah there's yeah, there's, it's such a dance because I feel like what you just spoke to V feels like something that I've really come to understand about like how much I was like in this space of like obsession with like the reclaiming of the feminine. Right. And it was actually creating imbalance, right. Mm-hmm. Like for all of these women that I'm working with and it's like, no, like we need to be deep in the space of intuition and flowing and, and we need containment within mm-hmm. ourselves. We need some of that healthy masculine energy as well. If we don't Girl, have you that- said this shit to me. We did, I remember <laughs> we did a retreat weekend and today was like, we gotta get crazy. We gotta be all in chaos. And there was a couple women, myself included, that were like, I don't like that. That feels really uncomfortable to me. Like I need some containment. And today's like, no. And I was like- I And I think that that's what always happens, right? Like, yeah. I think I was so in the wounded masculine for so much of my life that the liberation from that, like mm-hmm. the pendulum always swings so far in the other direction. That's like, no. Oh, I will be Calibrate. so feminine that you will not control me. I will flow. <laughs> and Vanessa's was like, yo, you got to contain some of that girl. Your feminine is flying everywhere. <laughs> True. But I think that that is the space that we are in. And I'd be curious to hear from you, Jesse, a little bit, what that looks like with the men that you've worked with, right? Um, as you're supporting them and coming into this healthy masculine Balance, energy, as yeah. I would imagine, like, how are you inviting some of their 
feminine energetics to come in as well, like some of their intuition and self-compassion and um, allowing all of those beautiful elements. Well, and to add to that question, like within, do you see it, up, do you see it swinging? Like, do you see in your work as you start to invite it in, going to what Danae was saying, do you actually see a pendulum swing? Um, or do you feel like in the work that you're, you're able to kind of bring it into a state of like homeostasis or, or mm. is it your experience that it does swing kind of wildly in one direction first? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's always interesting, right? Because no two people are the same. So you have, mm. there's a lot of the traditional, whatever you might call it, like um, alpha male mm -hmm. kind of chismo toxic forms. I mean, we do a whole piece around the male role belief system. And for a lot of these men, um, yeah, it, it, they were pretty wounded in that sense. And it's like never, and understandably when you come from, certain neighborhoods and inner cities and then you're in the gang life it's highly dangerous to seen mm. as weak and it's same goes for prison culture it's extremely dangerous to be seen as having weakness you could immediately get you know preyed upon and and you're and um it's it's a very cutthroat very dangerous primitive um hierarchical society prison culture gang culture so a lot of, for a lot of these guys, it was survival instinct and they mm -hmm. found out very early how to do that. So for a lot of the men, the, 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 the move has been, let's just practice talking about our feelings. Like we can mm -hmm. talk about feelings. We can cry together. We can mm -hmm. talk about shame. Like we can reveal stories about ourselves that we would never have told anyone. And then, oh my God, what is it like to have 30 other men listening to you and all have their eyes focused on you just listening. And a lot of them with like compassion and you have these incredible moments where men who have gone their entire lives without ever revealing any of this and it just cracks and it's just beautiful. And so you have a lot of folks on different parts of their journeys. Some of them are much more open and comfortable. Maybe they even grew up being able to cry and express inner feelings. There are some folks, but a lot of them have not. So it feels like the opportunity to get into their bodies through mindfulness to unpack some of the trauma we get into like attachment theory and early trauma they do a lot of homework around this writing letters to themselves to their victims to them they tell stories and then we unpack their commitment offense their actual crime moment by moment in front of the group mm -hmm. what happened what led to that specific moment of violence and a lot of deeply vulnerable stuff so there's a lot of shame um and a lot of grief that surfaces. So just being with that in any therapeutic way, right? Just being able to be in a, an unconditionally positive regard, you know, um, especially in a group can be extra powerful. And I don't, it's a good question, Vanessa, about does it swing versus, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I guess, how it continues on after the program per se, sure. much, but I think it's more of a balance. I think mm -hmm. A lot of them have been so deeply entrenched in how to like wear the mask, especially mm -hmm. if they're still in prison that I think they can find a way to like, a lot of them will like expose themselves in the groups and then kind of wear their mask when they go back out on the yard. Some of them don't, some of them become incredible models of healthy masculinity elsewhere in the prison. Another thing that's interesting is I don't know many religious people in my life there are a lot of religious folks in these circles. In part, the, the programs are self-help. I mean, you choose and select to do these kind of self-help programs. A lot of um, Christians and a lot of Muslims, also Jews and Buddhists, but a lot of these folks have found 
meaning making mm -hmm. and depth mm -hmm. and verticality in otherwise horizontal secular world through religion. And I think part of it's like you hit rock bottom and you're in your life sentence and suddenly religion can, but it's just been a fascinating thing because there's a beautiful way in which we're doing emotional intelligence and depth psychological work. And then there can be incredible infusion of faith and spirituality in these circles, which I don't know what to make of exactly, but there is, there's something in there. And I think Jung and Hellman, and um, they point to the numinous as a very important part. And I wonder about the polarities that we're seeing, the trauma cycles we're playing out, the reactivity we can all be in, and like, how much of this is transpiring in a very flattened horizontal secular world and we're a culture that has really lost connection to that vertical mm -hmm. dimension but that's, that's always bouncing around in my head in these conversations too yeah. i wrote about that in my thesis actually yeah that's part of it like this just complete as a as a culture just our complete disconnection to the numinous and to the spirit and you know mm. not just necessarily religion as a you know as a structure it could be any kind of spirituality but just connection to something higher right and and um it's just it, part of it's just by nature of the way that our society has gone and the way that we've grown and um but it we're we're, we're witnessing now the profound i think the profound effects that that has on a, on a people you know because mm. i mean obviously young was very clear that connection to spirit is is a central component to the individuation process like we need it as human beings you know it's very important and it can look any way you want it to look but it's got to be there in some form or another mm -hmm. otherwise it's really hard to have to find that wholeness that place of wholeness right yeah and so i imagine to your point like you hit this rock bottom this place and all of a sudden there's this window into oh there's this thing that's missing there's this component that's missing in my soul and in my life and it, it gives that window enough of an opening to to maybe access it yeah mm. And just in that conversation more broadly around cancel culture slash kind of the, that liberal, or just these conversations across gender and class and how easy like it is to get to stay in that anger mm -hmm. or resentment or that trauma place and religion and spirituality can really be transformative in, in forgiveness and letting go. You like mm -hmm. almost give it up to something beyond or you, you believe you're more than this body and that can shift how people engage with pain and hurts and resentment and trauma and blame and it, no one can tell anyone how to do their journey but what you were saying today is that's been really impactful for me too realizing a lot of survivors and victims of violence get stuck and mm. can never move out which is almost a now it sounds like one of the most hellish curses you can that's have. almost worse than maybe the actual incident itself right is a lifetime of being stuck i mean i would say that for any trauma it's that lifetime of being stuck in that place because it steals your entire life rather than it being a moment mm. yeah mm. yeah i mean i've i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this and i feel like you guys both just spoke to this a little bit but i've i've been holding this moment in time as what I feel like, what I pray is a collective initiatory process and that we are becoming something different. I, I think maybe in what you're saying, a return to some sort of an awareness of the sacred for all of us. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you, Jesse, how have you been holding this moment in history that we're in? Like, how are you understanding it? What do you think's happening right now, Jesse? <laughs> Uh, light and easy <laughs> you know there's, there's a lot of there's a lot there I don't know I would agree with you Danae mm. that it feels very much like an initiatory threshold moment um, ideally mm. 
And I, I guess I fluctuate with how I relate to it and think about it, but it's clear that we are in a moment and it feels kind of like a compression chamber. We're like going through a, an, an eye of a needle or a keyhole. There's some, there's something happening. And clearly with the forces with, I mean, it's accelerating, right? Between technology and um, the political polarization and climate change, everything is, it's going to continue compounding and accelerating. I, don't see how that wouldn't happen and so it's a mystery what's going to come but you know a lot of these it's it's just wild to me how it's all happening at the same time like mm. and it makes me so sad like sometimes I drop into climate change and you know I'm visiting out here in, in Colorado and the nature is so incredible and it's like you see forests like the beetles are killing these entire forests and the fires and there's just, I see my nieces and nephews growing up and it's like, I, my heart breaks. And mm. there's just part of me that sometimes is like, wait, everyone, let's all come together. We, this is an, um, like five alarm fire. We need to all come together and figure out how to save our home. Our home is on fire. Mm-hmm. And yet the one, the moment when we need to almost be uniting and putting our differences aside to solve these real world issues, where it seems we're splintering even further apart politically, and you have race and gender and class and you have, uh, you know, all these differences emerging and people really wanting to focus and unpack the differences. Mm. And it, you know, COVID enters the picture. I don't even know, but I would have to, I, what helps me is pivoting into a larger mythic and mm. spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. You think about the mythologies of these, you know, getting swallowed by the whale or going into the underworld and have to imagine that we're in a moment where it's there's not a lot of light and we're going to have to let it transform us and mm-hmm. lead us in towards greater individuation or awakening yeah, uh, yeah there's and right. there's a level of you know I, I what's coming up for me is the way that you bring mindfulness into your work um and i mean i think all of us as the therapists and the way that we practice do right um but how do I even word this? It's like, there's a privilege in being able to drop into the space that we are able to drop into in this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. When you have lived your life in a state of survival Mm -hmm. and you know nothing but survival, right? So if I'm listening to this and I'm going, fuck you, how do I even get to a place of compassion where I'm stuck in this fight or flight, you know, very reptilian brain survival is all I know. I can't drop into a state of emotion. That's not safe, right? I can't survive and survival comes first period. We're animals. Right. Um, and I, I think it's like, it's this titration to use that word again. It's this titration of like, expanding out we're able to have this conversation the three of us and also dialing in because I almost look at the mindfulness as like the ability to dial so far into the individual and say let's start there individually which then leads to the collective let's start there let's uh, allow your nervous system the space the tools the ability to feel safe enough to tap into compassion to tap Mm -hmm. into right and build this resilience because if we don't start there we're never going to get as a collective to this larger state because way too many of us are living in a state of panic and living in a state. And I mean, look, we could get into the whole systems and why that is, and let's keep, you know, socioeconomically and why that benefits certain people and all the things, but 
it is this balance between let's like the work that you're doing, you know, let's, let's pull out and hold the space for spirituality um, and this kind of higher consciousness thinking. And then let's also go into a state of mindfulness and say, let's, let's give you some regulatory tools so you can access that. You can't have a conversation about spirituality if you're constantly in survival mode, right? I mean, Maslow. So I don't know. I mean, that's not a question. It's just kind of, I guess, a, a observation of the importance of being able to come outward and then go inward and come outward and go inward. And then I guess, give other people those tools too, or that tool. Definitely the window of tolerance. Mm. And only when we're within that window of tolerance can our prefrontal cortex come online. And, you know, I think, you know, I had this sad, but almost funny thought of like, let's train people to come out of their trauma and fight or flight into this window of tolerance so that they can then metabolize the collective descent and initiation. It's like- MDMA, yeah. that's actually what MDMA does. That's the crazy shit that's going on right now, right? It's like, that's what they're showing happens to the brain. It mm. actually quiets the amygdala so that prefrontal cortex can do that and go, whoa, trauma. Okay, let's process this, right? Um, sure. So yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, that's obviously a whole other conversation, but it's like, when you said that, I'm like, holy shit, I was just reading this whole research study on that with PTSD and how that's exactly what that specific drug allows us to do. Oh, yeah. I have hope y'all. I have hope. <laughs> I have hope. I got to keep tapping into it. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> well, I just say that because today, you know, I tend to be a little bit more on like the, not necessarily pessimistic side, but that, you know, I, I do tend to kind of fall in that place sometimes. And I have to come back to this and be like, that's why I'm smiling. It's making me happy to hear you say that, babe. Um, I feel like we could just pick your brain on all of the depth topics forever. And I do feel like we're going to have to ask you to come back, Jesse, because I mean, there's Marianne Woodman. There's just like I, so, many, go on and on. so many roads we would like to explore with you. But we do have um, a lightning round of questions that we ask all of our guests that we want to get to. So the first question is who have been your greatest influences, mentors, people on your path, whether they're people, you know, or just people whose work has influenced you um, along this journey. Sure. Gosh, so many. Um, yeah. Um, well, Jacques Verdun was the founder of your program, just watching him um, as a deep mindfulness teacher and Buddhist teacher, just working in these circles has been a huge influence on me and understanding a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, his teacher is Jack Cornfield. So I was just going to say, does he, I, I was just going to ask you if you worked with Jack Cornfield, because I know he did a lot of work in San Quentin too. Yeah. He's come to a few classes and, and graduated mm -hmm. and Jack, I love Jack. He's, he's been a real model and teacher, you know, and it's interesting, right? That idea of healthy masculinity, because in some ways, I would I would think of Jack as having a lot of feminine energy, and he's very sensitive and thoughtful and kind of quiet spoken. But um, I was talking with someone, and it's like that can be such a powerful form of masculinity. Mm -hmm. He weds it with real insights, and like um, there's a discipline to his practice and his teaching, and the productivity mm -hmm. and like a life path. Um, so anyway, Jack and. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. I was just thinking that about you, Jesse, <laughs> that mm -hmm. I think that that is, there's something in what you're saying though, about like, there's something about a grounded, calm, mm -hmm. um, masculine. Safe. Yeah. That does create that safety. Mm -hmm. It's really, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, no. yeah. It's interesting. Cause there's different ways we all imagine, or I imagine what a healthy masculinity mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes I'm like, I, I need to be more fierce and alpha and dominant, but it's just, there's just an interesting spectrum of what mm. it can look like. Um, and yeah, psychologically, Carl Jung and James Hillman, Marion Woodman have all been really big influences. And I love history and philosophy. So Socrates and Plato, <laughs> big impacts early on. And I mean, there's so many, I don't even know if I can think of <laughs> more. Love it. Okay. So the second question is what happens in your life or what are you doing in your life when you find yourself in a state of flow? So what is that thing that you're doing where poof, six hours goes by, you don't even realize? What, what brings me into flow or, mm -hmm. yeah, um, geez. <clears throat> Meditation has been a, a beautiful gift for me. Sometimes I could feel like I really want to keep sitting and I have to pull myself back into the world. I have mm. like responsibilities. So meditation and, and prayer has been actually a, a place that I enter into flow easily. Being in nature is one. Being with my nieces and my nephews, being with my closest friends and loved ones um, bring me into flow. And then, and then if I'm writing or reading and I'm connecting and on an intellectual and spiritual level with things I'm very passionate about, I feel like that can definitely bring me into a state of flow um, as well. Beautiful. And what breaks your heart? Um, what breaks my heart is when people are, are caught in suffering and they can't get out. Mm. And that can look a lot of different ways, but when people are cycling in, in a very deep place of trauma and fear and, and suffering, that breaks my heart. Um, watching us collectively in the state of the planet and seeing people locked in cages with absolutely no access to, to resources breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And our final question is a heavy one. What's your favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> my favorite food. Um, recently I've gone back into pasta. <laughs> <laughs> I love you said recently. I was off the pasta for a You're while. You're off the pasta, <laughs> but I'm, I fell off the wagon. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm back on the pasta, y'all. My carbs, not my friend. Carbs, my best friend. Uh, they have that ability. They're 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 sneaky. Those carbs. <laughs> I get that. Oh, amazing. Aww. Beautiful. Well, Jesse, it's such a gift to see you. I feel like you know you are just really bringing us into the work that you do is I think such a gift for all of us. I think that um, it's, it's so important and I'm really grateful for the way that you're showing up in the world. And then like the writing that you do, bringing us all into the process of the mm -hmm. healing that you are getting to bear witness to and holding space for is just really inspiring. And I like Vanessa feel really hopeful after listening to you even for just this little bit of time. So thank you for being here and sharing with us. It means a lot. Thanks so much, Danae. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for having me and really a pleasure to be in this conversation. I feel like to what you said, Vanessa, this kind of dialogue and conversation, the, the slowing down, the unpacking, the challenging, this is what's needed in the world, mm -hmm. right? Is this, this attention. So thank you both for what you're doing with this podcast and for inviting me on. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us, you can find us on Instagram at Vanessa S. Bennett and at Danae Logan Selkin.